Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are the fearful, who are fearful of heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The clean, unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveller, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion singing, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and, and sighing shall flee away. The second reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope is that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope we do for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Ethan, and normally I'm at Snoswolds in Haberfield, where I'm doing a ministry apprenticeship. Uh, but I have the pleasure of being here with you tonight, and that's just a great honor. Uh, as Christian said, you were due to have Master Louisa McCourt preaching tonight. Instead, you've got The Apprentice. Sorry about that. Uh, but as I said, really great to be here with you. And just looking forward to getting into this passage and uh, concluding a series in looking at the church. Um, so let's jump in. 
But one day, towards the end of Jesus' life, his disciples came to him with questions about the future. They wanted to know what was going to happen, and they believed Jesus would have something to tell them. I wonder how many friends of yours could speak with certainty about future events. Many of my own friends have tried and absolutely failed, myself included. And you can almost make a pastime out of trying to predict what will happen in the future. But at best, we hazard a guess and hope our guesses come to pass. Not so Jesus. He defies science and the natural laws of the universe by knowing what is going to happen. And equally extraordinary is that Jesus freely shares his knowledge with his disciples and by extension with you and I sitting here in this room 2,000 years later and on the other side of the world. You too can have at least some sense of what lies ahead for you, thanks to him. Jesus says, and I read from Matthew chapter 24, he's talking about the future here. At that time, they will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. If you're a follower of Jesus, this lies ahead in your future. This is your destination. It is the great Christian hope that one day Jesus will return, gather his people to himself, and shepherd in paradise. Nothing gets in the way of that happening. But when it will happen is not for us to know. Jesus says no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So where does that leave you and me? How do we wait for that day which is coming, but not knowing when it's going to come? And how do you handle your disappointments and pains and griefs in the meantime? How do you remain patient in the present when you know the future, the future to come, is going to be so much better? It's not so easy. But God has not left us empty-handed. He's given us what we need to be a people who live in hope for the future and not out of fear. The church, the community of Jesus, can be a remarkable community of hope in a world of fear. Because God has saved us for a future that is good for us, we can wait without fear and with poise and grace and love, living lives that are compelling to a world that lives in uncertainty about what the future holds. God's people are not uncertain. So I have two points this evening that I hope will help you to wait with hope for the day of Jesus' return. Point one, you have a big future. And point two, you can have a better present. You have a big future. It's hard to think about the future when getting through each day in the present is hard work. Our focus and attention is often on what's happening right in front of us in the here and the now. As we scramble to get the assignment submitted, the kids in the car, the dinner on the table, the toilet clean, the bills paid, the family holiday in the calendar, you know it. 
the demands of the day lead us to live moment by moment. And that makes sense. But sometimes we need to pause, and especially when we're feeling overwhelmed and burdened, we need to pause and remember again where we are headed. And that's what Paul does for us in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 18. This is what he says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul zooms outward to give us a bigger cosmic perspective. He reminds us that whatever we're going through in the present, the good, the bad, the ugly, is not even worth comparing to how good our future will be. You might wonder, perhaps Paul doesn't know how bad it really gets in our day-to-day. Does he even know how hard it is for me? But Paul knows what he's talking about. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says, We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in affliction, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Paul gives us a window into his day-to-day, and it's no walk in the park. So when Paul says our human suffering does not compare to what the future holds, he's not being naive or flippant about how hard the present can be for us. He knows it. And so too does our God, whose love for us led him to suffer not just on the cross, but with blisters and bruises and stubbed toes too, the standard affair of human life. God knows life's sufferings, and he knows the future, so he can say that the future will be better by far. Now, sometimes our sufferings that we go through are private, and we keep them to ourselves. And you might be in that place now. Perhaps you haven't known the comfort of a Christian brother or sister walking with you. And whether you're suffering quietly or publicly with friends around you, can I just encourage you to make God's words your own and to say them to yourself when you need to hear them, when you're overwhelmed, when you're burdened, when you're doing the hard yards day to day. Be able to say to yourself, my present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. Your future will be very good indeed, and that can give you hope. But what makes our future so good? What lies in store for us? Well, littered throughout the New Testament and at the center of our Christian faith is the belief that Jesus' return will shepherd in a restored physical creation. On that day, we won't be spirits floating in a spiritual world bouncing around on the clouds of heaven as if we were on some never-ending vacation at Sky Zone. The future God will bring about is far more earthy than that. Verse 20, back in Romans. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation is currently in bondage to decay. It's frustrated. It's broken. 
And when we say creation, we're talking about that which God has created, the birds and the bees, the mice and the fleas, the lakes and the oceans, the skies and the depths. And what do we see when we look at them? Well, natural disaster, death, brokenness. The other day I walked past a possum by the side of the road. I won't finish that sentence. You know how it ends. And this week, I came across a post on my uh, socials from someone I went to school with. And I'll spare you from the whole thing, but I'll read you just one line. And this is what it said. Like so many, the post read, I suffer from serious climate anxiety with feelings of helplessness about what I can do to make any impact on the state of our planet. I don't know if you feel this. We are perhaps more nervous than ever about creation and where it's at. Climate change is present on the mind of many in the inner West. There will be a day when our fears and worries about the planet cease, and it won't be because of our efforts. We cannot save the planet. Hear me well. We can care for it, but we can't save it. Jesus takes that burden off our shoulders because he can save it and he does. As verse 21 says, there will be a day when creation will be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Part of what makes our future so good is that when Jesus returns, creation will come alive like never before and we, the children of God, will be in it and of it and stewarding it in freedom from death and pain and decay. Our future will be very good indeed. But not only creation, we can talk about other things as well. Something amazing is going to happen to you and I in our future. I read from verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I wonder, have you ever groaned from pain? Like a deep, guttural groan. It just says so much more than words could ever say. And Paul thinks it's a fitting noise to describe what it's like to live in a body that is broken. But we just need to be careful of the difference between groaning that is without hope and groaning that is with hope. We can groan with hope, not unlike a mother giving birth. Why? Because we groan in eager anticipation for what is about to come. You can groan with hope as you wait for the redemption of your body. And that word redemption, redeemed, is just one word the New Testament uses to describe what will happen to our bodies. There are other words too, imperishable, powerful, glorious, spiritual. Spiritual not in the sense of like a disembodied spirit will be physical beings, but spiritual in the sense that our bodies will be fitting and appropriate for eternity. We live in a culture that cares deeply about bodies, body image and function and appearance. And we have hopes and fears about our bodies. We wish they were tighter and lighter, fitter and stronger. 
We fear the day when they stop functioning the way they were made to. And maybe that day has already arrived for you. But God takes the pressure off our bodies needing to be everything we want them to be now. For he will raise them imperishable, powerful, glorious bodies. Our future will be very good indeed. On top of that, our lived experience, what we go through day to day, will be totally transformed in the future. We read in Revelation just the beautiful words that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the old order of things will pass away. How profound is the thought that God is so for us and desires to be so near us and with us in our experience, but not just with us in our experience, working to make our experience better, that he will wipe away our tears himself. Death, mourning, crying, and pain will become relics of the past. Maybe they'll feature in a museum somewhere because that will be the only appropriate place for them. So three things that we've just worked through just now. Creation, bodies, and lived experience. They're three areas that point to a bigger future for you, a better future, a future that is worth getting excited about. There's more to say about this future. The Christian hope of all the hopes that we might hope for fully satisfies our deepest yearnings. Pastor Tim Keller speaks beautifully about what happens to him and his wife when they sit down to watch a movie. Every movie has a narrative arc, and every time Tim and Kathy are brought to tears as they realize that the desires and hopes and fears that are brought to life in the movie are fully satisfied in the Christian hope. You can think about the prince who comes in and saves the day, the hero who sacrifices everything for the people, the happily ever after, that love wins the day, that goodness triumphs over evil. We hold these stories close to our hearts. We feel their beauty. But in the end, it's just a movie, right? They simply remain nice ideas. But it's not just fiction, For the Christian, we were made by God for a future in which these longings and yearnings are satisfied and they will be satisfied because Jesus makes that possible for us. The Christian hope for the future is thrilling. Also, the Christian hope is certain and secure. It's not mere wishful thinking. So much of what people hope for today is just dreaminess, the endless, if only this happened, if only I won the lottery, if only I could start over. But that's nothing like Christian hope, which is certain and based on fact, which is crucial if you ever get to the point of wanting to give it all up. I have friends who've reached that point and not given up the faith because they couldn't escape its factual basis. Jesus actually rose from the dead. And that changes things. It means the hope held out to us in the Christian faith is real and solid, no matter how wobbly you might feel. If we get caught up in the day-to-day, we can live moment by moment and we can forget just what a big future 
lies ahead for us. It's good news. Point two, you can have a better present. Hope is not just about the future. Because what you believe about your future radically shapes how you live in the present, in the here and now. The Christian hope we have can change how we live. Hope is that powerful. For over 40 years, Gallup education practice have studied the key factors that impact the performance of school students. And their results point to three factors in particular, engagement, well-being, and perhaps surprisingly for you, hope. And their research suggests that out of all three, hope is the key. Now, of course, when Gallup talk about hope, they simply mean the ideas and energy that students have for the future, whatever they might be. It's not specifically the Christian hope. Hope, if students have it, becomes a motivating, energizing force that allows them to try and try again, even when they fail. But when these researchers looked at Australia as a whole, they found that only 48% of students had it, had hope. What's true of our student population appears true of the general population too, I think. We can think of the rising tide of mental health, the epidemic of loneliness brought about more seriously in the last few years because of COVID, our anxiety about climate change and what it will mean for our future. There are plenty of reasons to look bleakly upon the world and we can be tempted to give up hope. And while for Christians, hope is a fact, it's a fact that you can live more or less in light of. And as you move through the world, your hope can pick up nicks and scratches as you face hardships and disappointments. I think that's partly why Paul encourages us to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Since we belong to the day of Jesus' return, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Hope is no lovey-dovey idea. It's not a pleasant thought or a word to put on an art print in your holiday home. It's much more than that. Famous prisoner and South African president Nelson Mandela, a man who spent over 27 years in prison, who could have given up hope, wrote, remember that hope is a powerful weapon. And as Paul points out, it's part of a Christian's battle armor, a helmet for your head, protection for your soul. And thanks to what Jesus has done for us, we have the helmet at the ready, but it's up to us to put it on and to use what God has given us as we face the hardships and challenges of the world. So let me ask you, how are you going putting on your helmet of hope? I just want to spend a bit of time as we finish up, thinking through the difference a helmet of hope might make to your life. There'll be opportunities here for you, just as you sit, to reflect for yourself and complete a checkup of sorts. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three quick things that your helmet of hope will protect you from and two ways that you can actually put that helmet on. So first, three quick things your helmet of hope will protect you from. 
Number one, cynicism. How are you going with cynicism? Cynicism is an attitude of distrust towards others, a belief that people are insincere. Do you find yourself being cryptically critical of others? In your thought life, do you believe you can see deeply beyond how people present themselves? And do you use that knowledge to tear people down in your mind? Join the club, firstly. The Christian hope leaves room for the possibility that people say what they mean and do what they say. And you can see how you might become cynical because we humans can be hypocritical and insincere and selfish, of course. But if you believe God is doing redemptive work in people's lives, you can be and will be more free to take people as they come and you'll be slower to judge and condemn. Hope protects us from cynicism. Second, fatalism. Do you think things can change for the better? Do you think people can change for the better? Fatalism is a belief in a determined outcome that we can't change things, that things are stuck as they are. And believing such a thing, you can see how it would lead you to stop contending for change in our world, for the good of others, and even for your own good too. But Christian hope tells us that there is a power for change, that the final outcome is in fact set, but not in a negative way. It's set for our good. God can change everything. He has changed everything, and he will. Finally, fear. How are you going with your fear? What are you afraid of? There's plenty of bad things that can happen to you, and it's tempting to fear because of that, but we don't need to live in fear. We don't need to be crippled by it because we know how it all pans out in the end. I don't know if you've had this experience before, but every time you watch a scary movie for the second time, the experience is totally different. The first time you watch it, you're nervous, you're jumpy, you're on edge. But the second time, you know exactly what is going to happen. You already know the ending. You do not need to be so afraid. The amazing thing is that that is what we can say about life. We don't know what tomorrow holds or what, the, what next year holds, but we do know what the end is. We know how it's going to end. And the helmet of hope, when we put it on, protects us against fear. Now, two ways that you can actually put on the helmet of hope. Firstly, first thing to do, go to the scriptures. The scriptures are filled with stories of hope. We can think of the Bible almost as the great textbook on hope. Romans 15 verse 4 tells us that God gave us the Bible and filled it with stories for our encouragement in order that we might have hope. It says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Putting on the hope of salvation as a helmet looks like picking up God's word for yourself and letting it shape your sense of self and what lies ahead for you. Second, church. God has given us a community of brothers and sisters to meet together for the purpose of encouraging one another and spurring one another on. 
When you do life on your own as a Christian, it's easy to give up hope, but a church community gets you outside of yourself as you encounter stories of God at work in other people's lives and as you witness what can be achieved in God's name by his people. Putting on the hope of salvation as a helmet looks like filling up on hope on a Sunday morning. I was almost tempted to say there, looks like getting high on hope on a Sunday morning, but Paige told me not to say that. So. I said it anyway. <laughs> to finish, I think this is, this is important here. The key to becoming a more hope-filled person is not willpower. It's not summoning the strength from within and the energy to white-knuckle it and to hope against all odds in all suffering because of your own willpower. Hope does not come from within. Looking inward is not the answer. Instead, we can look to Jesus, the real and true historical event of his death and resurrection, but also the real man who wants a real and personal relationship with you today. Against all odds, Jesus was not cynical towards us. He was not fatalistic. He had a profound hope for what you and I could be in him. And Jesus had his eyes set on that hope so strongly that he was able to endure ultimate suffering on the cross in order that we might have life beyond death, just as he has. Jesus Christ in you, the Bible says, is the hope of your glory. And when you find yourself without hope, overwhelmed, overburdened, and at a loss, Jesus invites you to fall to pieces in him, in his arms. And he of all people can remake you and give you hope again. Let's pray. Father God, we live in a world where it is easy to give up hope. But when we open your word to us, we see that there is so many reasons to hope. Most of all, the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And so we just pray now, would that become more and more real to us every day? Instead of living in fear, would you shape us by your spirit to be people who live with hope for the future? And we pray that our hope would be attractive and compelling to people around us who do not yet know you. Amen.